Well, these days, most companies have mission statements. And this morning I was looking up some different mission statements that are out there. Starbucks, Starbucks mission statement. To inspire and nurture the human spirit. It's very philosophical. One person, one cup, and one neighborhood at a time. Interesting. Here's REI for all of us kind of backpacking, outdoors enthusiasts. REI says their mission statement is to inspire, educate, and outfit for a lifetime of adventure and stewardship. (laughs) In-N-Out Burger. In-N-Out Burger tends to get into my sermons quite a bit. (laughs) Their mission statement, providing the freshest, highest quality foods, yes and amen, and services for profit and a spotless, sparkling environment whereby the customer is our most important asset. So if you could boil down our mission as Jesus' disciples, how would you do it? Like if I said, you have two sentences to boil down what King Jesus gives us as our marching orders, as our mission. How would you do it? Kind of a good challenge. And so that's what Jesus is going to do in our text today. Um, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 through 20. So grab your Bibles. I'm talking to you guys. Grab your Bibles if you don't have your Bibles. You at home, grab your Bibles. Open those things up. We're in Matthew chapter 28, 16 through 20. And the title of today's message is The Great Commission. You might be familiar with those words if you've been in church for a long time or any period of time. Maybe you're familiar with that that idea, the Great Commission, this commission from King Jesus. And in Matthew 28, Jesus had just risen from the dead, and he told his disciples that, hey, I'm going to meet you at the mountain that's in Galilee. And so his disciples are headed there, and they're there to meet the risen Jesus. And let's go ahead and read through it, and then we'll make some observations. Chapter 28, verse 16. But the eleven disciples, Judas isn't there anymore because he hung himself after he betrayed Jesus. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. Love the honesty. And Jesus, verse 18, came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority... Has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, four different observations that I want to make about this mission that. Jesus gives us. And the first one is this. The Great Commission starts with worship. The Great Commission starts with worship. Notice again in verse 17, when they're heading to Galilee, when they see him, what do they do? It says, verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him. And that word in the Greek, uh, if I'm saying it right, is proskuneo, and it means to like prostrate yourself, to fall down, literally like to get down on your knees and to honor and worship as someone, even in the Greeks, 
they would use this word to talk about serving deities. And so they recognize that Jesus is God. He's risen from the dead, like he said he would, and they worship him. That's their first response. But again, love the honesty. Some were doubtful. I don't know. You know, what is this? we've talked about this in our discipleship group. What are they doubting? Jesus just was tortured on a cross and was murdered, and then he rose from the dead, and they're still like, ah, I don't know, though. <laughs> I'd like a little more proof, you know? Like, what are you looking for, you know? Uh, but some were doubtful. And, and that's, and just as a side note, that's part of discipleship anyways, right? We have doubts, we have want questions and stuff like that. Even among the church, we have many among us who are, are doubting still and wrestling with, with faith. Is this even the real deal? But what's so interesting that I want to point out to us is that the Great Commissioning, starting with worship, as they see Jesus, these Jews who are worshiping Jesus are monotheistic Jews, meaning they, they worship one God. You know, the, the Lord is one. That was part of the Shema that the, the uh, Israelite people would quote from De- uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. So God is one, and yet here is Jesus, the Son of Man, that they're worshiping. So obviously these monotheistic Jews believe that Jesus is God. And there's been a progression in the revelation of Scripture where now they understand that God is one, yet three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which Jesus gets to in verse 19. But really interesting um, that they see Jesus as God because that's who he is. Um, Just some other examples of Jesus being worshipped in Scripture. Like, is this like kind of a one-off thing? Maybe the disciples didn't understand it. Because a lot of people today, you know this, you hear this, that Jesus was a good guy, he was a good teacher, he was even a miracle worker. But the fact that he was God, well, that's kind of debatable. Jesus didn't really see himself as God. The reality is, multiple times in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament, Jesus receives and welcomes and even commands worship. In Matthew 14, when uh, Peter sank in the water after walking on the water, which I think he did pretty good, but Jesus said, you have little faith. And he gets back into the boat, and everyone's so frightened and intimidated by Jesus and so impressed by Jesus that it says everyone in the boat worshipped Jesus when he got back into the, the boat. That's what it says. And John chapter 9, verse 38, the um, man who was born blind, Jesus spits in the mud or in the ground. He makes some mud and puts it on his eyes, which would have been a little weird. And then he says, go wash in the, the pool of Siloam. And he goes and washes and he receives a sight. And afterwards, Jesus appears to him. And I believe he says, you know, do you, um, do you believe in the Messiah? And he's like, well, who is he? So I can believe in him. And he says, I am he. And uh, the man falls down and worships Jesus. Pretty cool. At the end, I know, at the end of John chapter 20, when, remember Thomas was doubting? He's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. if I'll, Maybe Thomas was one of these guys who are d- still doubting. I don't know. If I, unless I see the holes in his hands and the, 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 you know, the marks in his side, I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus shows up and says, hey, put your hands here. He falls down and he says, my Lord and my God to Jesus. Pretty cool. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6, it, God says that uh, the angels worship Jesus. And then in Revelation, tons of times we see Jesus being worshipped as the Lamb of God. The same glory, honor, power, blessing that the Father receives. So the uh, Jesus receives as well. And like these disciples, when we catch a glimpse of Jesus and who he is and what he's done, it ought to always result in worship. 
And as we get into the word and we grow in our understanding of like just who this Jesus is, just how impressive he is, our worship ought to instinctively um, draw out of us. And in fact, all of life, when we catch a glimpse of something beautiful or praiseworthy or lovely, praise comes out of our mouth. This is a natural response. It would have been unnatural for the disciples to see Jesus and not worship him. When we see Jesus for who he is, it naturally results in worship. And C.S. Lewis talks about this principle, and he says, men spontaneously praise whatever they value. Men spontaneously praise whatever they value. I think we delight to praise, he continues, what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. So it's like when you go on a super sweet hike and you're on the edge of this mountain and you see the the sun setting, it would be unnatural for you not to say anything about it to your buddies. Not to say, man, this is sick. This is super awesome. The praise actually completes the joy you're experiencing. Or when you go on a date with your wife and you take her out and her beauty captivates you, you can't help but say, you look beautiful. You look really nice. It naturally rolls out of your mouth. Or I was in Albertsons the other day and I smelt like pumpkin spice fall going on. Like they're starting to put their candles out. I don't know how they do it. Maybe they're putting like incense. It's the pine cones. Jasmine says it's the little scented pine cones, which you can put in your bathroom in a little basket if you want. Anyways, this is kind of fun because I got to be a little, a little bit more transparent here. Anyways, but it's like when fall is coming and we're starting to eagerly, like we're putting on jackets, it's way too early, but we're starting to wear coats and stuff like that. And we're awaiting the pumpkin spice latte to come back out at your favorite coffee beverage store. Uh, it's like you're excited about it, you're talking about it. And so this is the same. When we experience God, we worship just like these disciples, when we encounter Jesus, we worship him. Do you remember when you first were really encountering Jesus? Like, he loves me right in the middle of all my stuff. He sees exactly what I'm going through. And yet he still says, I am for you. I am with you. I died for you. It moves us and it moves us to worship and it ought to continue to be the case. And what I want to say is, if we're not continually, ongoingly, more and more impressed with Jesus to the point where it makes our heart sing, our mind soar with wonder at who he is, and not only Jesus, but the Father and the Spirit as well, something's gone wrong in our discipleship. And in this whole like obedience to the Great Commission, which we're going to get into, starts with worship. Like We have to be growing in our affection and love for Jesus. If we're actually growing to know him, then it should get sweeter and sweeter. And so the question I have uh, for us, is that the case? Where in your Christianity, Jesus is becoming better and better and better in your mind and your understanding of who he is, that your worship is becoming more passionate, your lifestyle of obedience and joy in the Lord is more significant. And so that's what we want to press into, is seeing Jesus and allowing that to store our affections and worship him. The Great Commission starts with worship. Secondly, the Great Commission is given with authority. The Great Commission is given with authority. Look again at verse 18. 
Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, some authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Most authority, okay, Bible exegetes, heresy hunters, not most authority, not some authority, not like pretty much all authority. Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus as the son of man and the second Adam has just received from the father a kingdom and glory and power so that all the world might serve him, come to know him and serve him and to worship him as the one true king. Look in, uh, I want to look at a couple different biblical examples of this, of this authority that's given to the son of man, Jesus Christ. Look at Daniel. And I do want us to turn there. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's one of the minor prophets right after the book of Ezekiel. And in this vision that Daniel is having, he sees the Ancient of Days, which seems to be the Father, and then he sees the Son. It says in verse 13 of chapter 7, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, which the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Pretty cool. One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So here's the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. Prophesied. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, or your translation might say in sovereignty, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him, or um, maybe better translated would be worship him. It's actually the same word that's used in Daniel chapter 3 when King Nebuchadnezzar commands everyone to bow down and worship the golden statue. It's the same word here, that everyone might worship him. It says, continuing in verse 14, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so Jesus is saying, I'm setting up right now that kingdom. And he was already doing that in his life, in his teachings, his miracles, his casting out of demons, and especially his resurrection. And so now he's saying, it is going down. And then uh, one other text on the authority of Jesus and um, how we see that is Revelation chapter 19. This is one of my favorites about the authority of King Jesus. And yes, this is the text that talks about Jesus on a white horse. This is pretty awesome. If this doesn't get you excited, as a Christian, I don't know what does. Chapter 19 of Revelation, last book in the Bible, verse 11. The Apostle John is having this apocalyptic vision, and he sees heaven opened, verse 11, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. This is not the soft, cuddly Jesus that we often think of. He's judging and he's waging war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. I just think that's cool. Like Jesus has a name on him that no one knows just for the, I don't know if it's just for, it's just a, a power move. Anyways, verse 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Hear the authority. They're following King Jesus in battle. <laughs> this is so epic. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, uh, which is the word of God, so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords, meaning Jesus is the King of earthly kings, and he's the Lord of earthly lords. And so, as we're thinking about Jesus' authority, I believe that more and more Christians will be faced with interesting circumstances that really make them question, what kind of authority does Jesus have, and how do we live under that ultimately, rather than another earthly authority that's competing with that authority? So this understanding of Jesus' authority is going to be more and more crucial for us moving forward, I believe, in America. That Jesus is Lord, not Kate Brown, nor Joe Biden. And that's not controversial to say. Biblically, the, the New Testament, their first creed was Jesus is Lord. The Romans had a creed, and it was Caesar is Lord. So the the proclamation of the gospel in the first century was very offensive to Rome. And it got a lot of Christians in trouble because Rome knew that, hey, as Christians, we're pledging allegiance to King Jesus, not to King Caesar. And, uh, and so that was a bold statement. And so I think we just needed to grow uh, in our understanding of this authority of Jesus, especially like it's kind of a wisdom thing. Like there's a lot of pressure coming down on Christians um, and and do we just submit to every single thing that the government hands our way? And so here's a principle that I, I think this text brings up. Um, this authority of Jesus reminds me of this principle, and I think it's, it's important as Christians that we know this. So here's the principle. When a governing authority commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, we must respectfully disobey those governing authorities. Let me say that again. When a governing authority commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then we must respectfully disobey those governing authorities because Jesus is the ultimate authority. So if there's a governing authority that says this, we need to submit to this thing, and King Jesus actually says, well, that's not moral. That's not according to my morality that I have commanded in my word. Then we have to respectfully disobey those commands. Here's some biblical examples of civil disobedience for the sake of submitting to God's authority and not a government um, per se. The Hebrew midwives, you remember in Exodus, the Hebrew midwives were told by Pharaoh to murder the Hebrew boys that were being born because he was worried that they were going to take over, the Israelites were going to take over Egypt. But the Hebrew midwives did not do that, and God blessed them for their disobedience to Pharaoh. Why? Because they were, uh, Pharaoh was commanding something that God forbid, which was murder. And this is along the same lines of abortion today. We're not to submit to the command to uh, murder babies. Rahab, uh, remember when Rahab hid the spies? She was being disobedient to her governing authorities 
but she knew she was submitting ultimately to God in that. And so she hid the spies and she did the Israelites a favor and God blessed her. She's mentioned in the the hall of faith and I believe in James chapter two as um, an evidence of work of faith in her life. Esther, this is a pretty cool one. Uh, Esther, when she went to the king of Persia and um, was wanting to save the Jews because there was this edict out that we're going to kill all the Jews, she wasn't allowed to just go marching into the king's um, in where he was at and she says, I'm going to go to the king, quote, which is not according to the law, uh, Esther chapter 4, verse 16. So to save the Jews, she broke the law of the king so that she could preserve life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a famous story. And Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, worship this statue. When you hear the music playing and the, the, you know, the band's going to play, I want you to fall down and worship this false god. And they said, nope sorry. Yeah, it's like, amen. These guys said, no, we're, we know that God has forbidden forbidden uh, pagan idol worship, and so we're going to have to say no. That's a hard pass. Daniel, there was a mandate that came out that you can't pray. And so what's so interesting about Daniel and this whole thing with Darius, he continues to pray, and not only that, he opens his windows so people can watch him pray. It's like, Daniel, just keep it behind closed doors. No one will know. No one has to know. But he said, no, I'm going to continue to pray. And, uh, and so he did, and they threw him in the lion's den, and then the Lord preserved him. This was an interesting one. Um, the Magi, when they came, the wise men, when they came to, to see Jesus, to see where he was born, hey, we heard the king of the Jews was born here. They were warned in a dream by God not to go back to Herod, because King Herod had said, hey, when you find him, let me know so I can come and worship him too even though he just wanted to destroy Jesus because he was a threat to his empire or his kingdom. And they ignored Herod's command, and it says they left for their own country by another way. So they disobeyed Herod for the sake of obedience to God. Acts 4 and 5, the apostles are told to stop preaching about Jesus, and they say, no thank you. (laughs) They just keep preaching about Jesus. Paul and Peter, uh, this is interesting. Paul and Peter, who wrote about submitting to the government, were both executed by the Roman government because of civil disobedience. Let me say that again. Paul and Peter, who wrote about submitting to the government, both of them had, um, in Romans 13 and in 1 Peter chapter 3, they both talk about, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 2, they both talk about submission to government, respectful submission to the government, and yet both of them were executed by the Roman government for civil disobedience. They kept preaching the gospel. Church history says that uh, Paul had his head cut off and he was in and out of jail because he was disobedient to the government and Peter was crucified upside down. And so, so what? I, I just think there's, this is important to think about in our day, this authority of King Jesus, that he is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords, that ultimately Jesus is Lord. So what? One is this is a gospel issue, not a political issue or another side issue. So this can sound distracting, like, well, this isn't about the gospel. This is maybe political. We're talking about government and authority and all that. This is a gospel issue. This is part of the Great Commission. Jesus says, go make disciples. Based on what authority? He said, well, it's all mine. You see America? That's mine. Do you see India? That's my place. All authority. Everything is mine, and therefore I'm sending you as the king of all kings. And so, if necessary, 
disobey for the sake of this great commission. So this is a gospel issue, and Jesus is the king. And so it's not just a political thing or a side issue. This is part, this is part of the gospel. Read the book of Revelation. Part of the gospel is that Jesus is the rightful king, and he will judge the nations. And so we're under this authority, ultimately. Um, secondly, so what? As disciples of Jesus, we need to grow more and more familiar with this picture of Jesus's authority. This kind of like makes you uh, weak in the knees, tremble a little bit. Like this is Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the eternal God taken on flesh who will come and tread the fierce wrath, winepress of the the wrath of God. And so we we need to kind of, I know in my own heart, like I need to be emboldened by this. That this is like, this is the king who's sending us out to, as sheep among wolves, you know? Like, it's a dangerous place out there, but King Jesus is sending us. And so I think just as we're thinking about Jesus, like hearing the words of Jesus, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It should strengthen our resolve. It should melt away our fear and timidity in in, um, proclaiming the gospel in dark places. And that we, we come to fear him alone. I'm not afraid of Kate Brown. I'm not afraid of Joe Biden. I'm not afraid of so-and-so. King Jesus is who I serve. He's the one I worship as king. So, that's good news. <laughs> the Great Commission is given with authority. Thirdly, the Great Commission is centered on making disciples. So what's it about? Why are we being commissioned by Jesus. Well, he says it's for making disciples. Look in verse 19. A couple different ways we make disciples. Go therefore, based on my authority, and make disciples, or uh, the, the word disciple means, like in our modern day language, apprentice would actually be a really good translation of disciple. You're a, a lifelong student and learner. And so a disciple is a lifelong student and learner of Jesus. So go make those of all the nations, uh, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So discipleship, making disciples, going into all the nations, everywhere we go, our families, our workplaces, our recreation, all of it, we're going to make disciples. That's what we're after, is to make these lifelong apprentices and students of Jesus. And he says it's really a two-part thing. It's, it's both baptizing and then teaching. So just to break it down that way, baptizing is kind of like evangelism. So baptism implies that when you're going to make disciples, that you're first going to evangelize them, right? You're going to win them to Christ so that then they can be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and so this is part of our discipleship. We're, we're called as disciples of Jesus to go evangelize. And if, if evangelism is something in your mind that's for the kind of the Navy SEAL Christian or, you know, that's just for the pastors. You know, I'm, I'm just more of a quiet person. I'm a little bit more reserved. I, I can never talk to people about Jesus. We're actually being disobedient to Jesus's command to go make disciples, to be his witnesses. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the most part of the earth. And so that logic of, well, I'm, I'm no evangelist and I kind of just, I just show Jesus by my works and stuff like that. It just doesn't work. Jesus actually commands us to 
baptized, meaning that we're actually talking to people about Jesus and winning them to Christ and, uh, and baptizing them. Uh, which, if you're newer to the Bible, baptism is um, the idea that we're submersed underwater, representing us being put to death in Christ, all of our sin being washed away in him and then re- uh, resurrected to new life in him. If you haven't been baptized, you're watching this and you've been following Jesus for a amount of time, that is really your first step of obedience as a Christian. You need to be baptized to publicly show the, the church and the, wor- the watching world that you've identified yourself in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, you can talk to Sam, shoot us an email. We'd love to get you baptized as a, a first step of your discipleship. So that's baptism or evangelism. And then he says, um, we're to teach them all that I commanded you. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Now it's important to note here as we're thinking about making disciples, King Jesus is commissioning us. He doesn't say teach them to know all that I commanded you. Teach them to mentally understand all that I commanded you. He says teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Teach them to obey all that I commanded you. And as Christians in the West, we've gotten really good at going to all the Bible studies, knowing all the things. We've been to a zillion conferences, men and women's conferences. We got all the best books and study tools. Um, But actually engaging in the work of discipleship, where we're actually teaching other people how to follow Jesus. This is a a push for us. And uh, so this, this means that we're actually taking other people who are either not saved yet or a brand new Christian, baby Christian, and teaching them to follow Jesus. And we're teaching them God's word. So this means, like a lot of times we'll like to hang out as Christians. Like let's say I go spend some time with someone. I meet up with a guy for a cup of coffee or whatever. But the entire time we're together... I don't teach the Bible, I don't talk Bible, I don't pray Bible, I don't read the Bible, we don't listen to the Bible together. It would be entirely inaccurate to say that's a discipleship relationship. That's just two guys hanging out. Discipleship is when the Bible is being opened up. Jesus says, teach them to uh, observe all that I have commanded you, meaning you're actually getting into the Bible. Whether you open it or you're talking from memory about scriptural truths and realities, discipleship means we're actually teaching other people the ways of Jesus. And so I would just encourage you, like one of the best things you can do if you're going to meet with someone, say, hey, let's meet up together. And whether that's like a mutual discipleship relationship where you're both kind of at the same place, but you're encouraging each other in the Lord, or it's a brand new Christian or someone who's maybe a little further behind you that you're helping out, bring your Bible. Just say, hey, bring your Bible. Let's have a cup of coffee, but grab your Bible. Because it's all too easy to just talk about COVID and talk about the weather and talk about the sport we're watching or the thing we're tuning into, but to say, I want this to be a discipleship relationship. Um, And so I think that's really important. So let me ask this question. If being a disciple is summed up this way, Jesus says, this is what a disciple does. Based on my authority, they're baptizing and teaching other people, making disciples. If that's the definition, can we claim as disciples of Jesus to be mature, spirit-filled disciples if we aren't engaged in evangelism and teaching the Bible? So Levi says no. 
So if like we're not doing the two key things that Jesus says, I mean, there's a lot that Jesus says, but this is the great commission. If we're not engaging in some way or another in evangelizing, telling other people about Jesus, prayerfully looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus, um, and we're not engaging in teaching other people the Bible and say, watch my life and let's look at the Bible and see how to follow Jesus. If you're not doing those two things, I would say that you're not actually doing the main things that Jesus said to do. And we're not as mature as we might say. I heard one pastor who was speaking in a conference. He said, you know, we've, as Christians, we've learned to measure the maturity of a disciple based on how much they know, rather based on Jesus's criteria of making disciples. So a truly mature disciple, even if they've only known Jesus a year, and they don't have the whole Bible memorized, like some people do who've been following Jesus for 20 years, they might be more uh, mature than the disciple who's been following Jesus for 20 years if that Christian who's a brand new Christian is already starting to disciple and mentor and evangelize. So that's the mark of, of true maturity. And if you're tuning in, that's the call from King Jesus. Maturity in your life looks not like, uh, maturity in my life looks not just like knowing a bunch of scripture, thinking a lot about scripture, showing up to the worship services, going to the conferences. It means actually being obedient to these simple truths. I'm going to evangelize people at my, friend, uh, my, my coworkers, my friends, my family, and I'm going to look to teach the Bible when I get opportunities. That's maturity. That's Christian maturity. It's so simple. And Jesus makes it really, really simple. Part of our DNA at Philippi is that on our website, we're a disciple-making church. In quote, uh, we believe disciples are made when they join in the work of making more disciples. So that's, that's true discipleship, is when you're beginning to make more disciples. Let me ask this as well, and then I, I need to move on. If we're not engaged in making disciples, and our Christianity is based on I go to church, I tithe, whatever, but we're not actually engaged in making disciples, should we be surprised that we're experiencing so little power from God, so little intimacy with God, so little Holy Spirit, so little joy and purpose and mission in our life as apprentices and disciples of Jesus? Like here's the main thing that King Jesus says, go do, and if we're not doing it, why would he richly pour out his spirit on us to go do that? Like that's one of the main reasons that the Holy Spirit's been given to us. Not only for our seal of adoption and affirmation as God's kids and the gifting of the Holy Spirit is that we'd actually be used for making more disciples. And so if you feel kind of crusty and dry in your relationship with Jesus and Christianity is getting boring, maybe it's because you're not engaged in making disciples. And, and I think that there's something to that, that like as we're doing that, God will bless and um, bless our efforts. We got to, sorry, I don't know why I'm so distracted by that. Oh, cool. Someone wanted to plug in? Oh, cool. Gotcha. Anyways. How might God use you to make disciples of those people that are in your life? I might be helping uh, in the kids' wing, teaching our kiddos. That might be helping with our fourth through ninth grade class. That's a little plug. We need some extra hands on deck for that. Shameless plug. That might be um, 
asking a girl at church if you're a female for a, uh, if you'd like to get a cup of coffee and read the Bible with me. What does it look like to begin evangelizing people around you and to be teaching those who are around you? And then lastly, I do want to ask, if, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, um, you should be. Jesus is, is worth it. Every bit of your life is worth laying down for the sake of Jesus and his purpose for your life. And that is that you would die to yourself and that you would be renewed in him, be forgiven of your sins, and that you'd be following his purpose for your life, which is to go make disciples. And so if you haven't trusted in Jesus, the call for you today is to come to be a disciple of his, that you would come to see that he's died for your sins, that he rose again, and that if you turn from your sins and trust in him, he'll forgive you of your sin and he'll give you eternal life starting today. And uh, you'll get to join the mission with us in making more disciples. So, the Great Commission starts with worship, is given with authority, is centered on discipleship, and lastly, the Great Commission promises Jesus' presence. Jesus' presence. Love this part. Look at, uh, we'll just look at the whole of verse 20. It says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. I am present with you always, even to the end of the age. Which theologically, this begs the question, how is Jesus with us if he ascended to the right hand of the Father? How can he actually promise to be with us if he's not with us? Well, he's with us through the Spirit. And uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago at your house. We're all opening our Bibles and thinking together about this. Uh, Go to John chapter 16. I want to look at verse 5 through 7. In John chapter 16, the last couple chapters, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his departure, he was going to go and be crucified and return to the Father. In John chapter 16, verse 5, he says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Like, Jesus, why are you leaving us? This is the best thing ever. We have God in the flesh with us, teaching us when we need him, encouraging us when we need him, doing miracles next to us. Sorrow has filled your heart. Verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. This is a head scratcher. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So here's the truth. And J.D. Greer, let's see if I can quote it right. Jesus in you is better than Jesus next to you. So Jesus in you is better than, oh, I think he specifically says the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is in us. It's the Spirit of Christ uh, via the Holy Spirit. He's in us. And so that's the truth that Jesus is finishing here with. He says, look, in this whole Great Commission thing, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. You're going to go and make disciples. And I know this is a scary, daunting task. There's 11 dudes And Jesus is saying, I want you to go change the world. It's amazing. And he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's encouraging. And as I was thinking about this, I just asked this question. Have you ever had a really big task that was given to you? But the person in authority who gave that task to you said, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to shadow you. I'm going to make sure that you know what you're doing. I'm not going to just walk away. Maybe it was a coach. Maybe it was an employer a parent. I can remember when I was like five or six, 
when we were kids, we had like this, I don't know, acre lot. And we, Southern California, we just always had weeds growing in our, our lots. So there was four kids. So we all had like one quarter of the yard that we had to weed. And I was like five or six. This felt like a daunting, like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. And so I was dropping the ball. I was not doing well. And I remember I was so overwhelmed. And in my little five or six-year-old brain, I'm just thinking, there's no way I can weed my little portion of the yard. Looking back, it probably wasn't that bad, you know. But And my dad ended up grabbing a shovel, and we went out together and finished the job. And this is ex- exactly what Jesus is saying. I'm going to grab a shovel with you. I will be with you. It's Jesus' strength. We just read in Philippians chapter 4 a couple weeks ago. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Jesus is saying, I will be with you. And I'm going to help you do this hard work of making disciples. And this is ultimately where we find our greatest confidence. When we're walking around downtown and praying for people. And it's a little awkward. This is where our confidence comes from. This is where encouragement comes from. This is where our strength comes from. In this great commission that Jesus is right there with us. In our, we've been having a discipleship group, and uh, we've been memorizing uh, just some gnarly heat just kicked on, or AC. <laughs> Anyways, we've been memorizing scripture, and this is one of the scriptures that we memorized. It's Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. And several of you said that you were feeling a little lonely, a little whatever, and this is a verse that comforted you, that Jesus is right there with you. And so that's super encouraging. So I guess just to finish it off, um, Jesus is Lord, and he's worth following. He's worth going and doing what he says. And uh, really, this is my last time, unless somehow next week I get to, to preach again, um, this is my last time preaching. And I'm not saying I'm like Jesus, who's ascending into heaven. This is my, this is my great commission to Philippi Church. <laughs> Although I had a pastor do that one time. He was leaving and he was given like his great commission. <laughs> it was a little weird. Maybe, maybe blasphemous. But uh, just like if there was a final word I would have, like if there was something, it'd be like anywhere in the Bible, it'd be this. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded you. And lo, he is with you always, even to the end of the age. And remember, Philippi Church, that all authority in both heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. And may that encourage you today, strengthen you, and uh, hopefully we'll all be back next week, but no promises. Uh, Stay tuned, and God bless you, and love you guys so much. Amen.